Welcome to Stage, the Streaming Age podcast. This is it, our very last episode of Season 1 on Stage. We will be bringing new commissions, new artists, and new ideas in no time, so stay tuned for Season 2. Today's podcast is the second part of a very special delivery, so if you missed the first one, you might want to go back and listen to it first. Our guest journalist is Juan Canela, who takes us deep into the underwater world of artist Eduardo Navarro, transdisciplinary duo Barilla, and their animated octopus goddess Octodurga. This is a co-commission between Stage and TBA21 Academy. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tba21.org and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Don't forget to share it with your friends and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. Um, in the work that uh, Eduardo and Barria have provided, it goes even a little bit further because what uh, what is layered into the into the sound and the sound files are for us for human um, non perceptible frequencies, right? So they, these are frequencies that uh, are possibly being perceived by and heard by uh, marine species, but not by humans, right? So there's even so it's pushing these invisible edges of, uh, of the soundscape uh, beyond our uh, capacity to perceive, which I find is really interesting. That's an excellent point. And in fact, uh, the cephalopods in general also have one of those tricks that we've almost uncovered. But let me explain. The eye of the octopus is very unusual. It has got very high visual acuity, so they see the world in great sharpness much like we do. And they can see well in the dark, which we cannot do very well. They can see contrast very well, which we can see very well. But they don't see color at all. And we do see color. Instead of not seeing color, what they can see is the polarization aspect of light, which we are blind to. We have no idea what the world looks like using the polarization aspect of light, because light is an electromagnetic component. It has an electric component and a magnetic component, and polarization is part of that. And so the strange eye of the octopus somehow achieves colorblind camouflage, which is a whole different question and that we don't understand. But it also can see the polarization aspect of light, and we don't know what that enables them to do. But we do know that most of the predators of an octopus cannot see polarized light, but the octopus can see polarized light, and then the cuttlefish can too. And they can also selectively turn on polarization patterns from their skin so that, hypothetically at least, they have a hidden communication channel in which one cuttlefish could signal in polarization to another cuttlefish, but the predator that Predators that eat them, like a barracuda or a diving porpoise, cannot see polarization. So they could maintain their camouflage, 
against the predators, but still talk to each other through the polarization channel. There's a little, we have some data on that. It's not a complete story, but I'd say we're halfway there. So there's another case of where, you know, a comparable to your sound uh, analogy that there's a visual one too that the octopus actually has. Do you know if they um, if they use bioluminescent as well? If they hunt at night uh, on a reef, can they can they switch on bioluminescence? Oh yes, the cephalopods have some of the most diverse bioluminescence of any animals. I mean, there's a lot of bioluminescence throughout all taxa, invertebrates and vertebrates, fishes in particular, and a lot of crustaceans and plankton, even you know single celled algae, single celled uh, animals. But the cephalopods have a phenomenal variety of bioluminescent patterns. And some of them are used for camouflage and some are used for education. So <laughs> you humans aren't very tuned into this. Uh, we sort of think of fireflies as the only thing that we can think of for bioluminescence here on land. But underwater, there's an enormous amount of bioluminescence, not only in the deep sea, but every single night in the shallow water, there's a lot of bioluminescence going on and the cephalopods are really good at it. So they have that skin layering too, in which they can use bioluminescence. Not every species has it, but some, many of the cephalopods do have bioluminescence. If I understand correctly, the Humboldt squid um, hunts in packs or, or pods or, or teams, whatever, and they communicate and coordinate uh, um, the hunt through flashing and communicating through light. Is that true? I don't go for that story. I know the Humboldt squid very well. I've dived on it at night, and I know the papers that are published on it. They definitely do these bold flashing patterns. I think they do it as a state of excitement that the animal's sensory system is is really turned on. Uh, it's only been seen under bright lights that these are very nocturnal animals. They live at 900 feet during the day where it's total darkness except for bioluminescence. And they come up at night near the surface in the dark and feed on bioluminescent animals like fishes. But information we have on the flashing patterns so that we can see them as humans turn on the equivalent of sunlight with thousands of kilowatts of light, and you see them flashing all the time. So they definitely flash, but they do it to me as an alarm pattern. And I don't think that they are necessarily communicating with one another. Yes, each other sees that flashing pattern, and it signifies a high level of excitement in the animal. Now, that's a pretty simple, straightforward communication. As for group hunting, I don't think they're doing group hunting. I think when you draw them up to a light and 15 or 20 giant or, you know, sorry, the red devils, as they're called, the Humboldt squid get excited and are going after the bait fish and other things. Yes, there's a lot of excitement and it. it might look initially like group cooperation, but I've written a whole book entitled Cephalopod Behavior. I've analyzed all the literature on it, and we don't have any example of group hunting by any cephalopod, and I don't think we have enough information to say that uh, these animals can do it either. So sorry to pour water on that one, but I'm just being a, an accurate, skeptical scientist. <laughs> I know the data. I know what data are out there and what aren't out there. Well, it's a, it's a great story, um, but I'm very happy to know it's... Uh, <laughs> It might be lower. 
Yeah, I think there's some overinterpretation in one or two of the scientific papers, and you also so got to be careful about that. I mean, I, I live in a very competitive scientific world, so I'm not one to exaggerate things. There's so much exaggeration about the cephalopods, especially on the internet, that uh, I think a role that I and my colleagues can play is to bring what we know about the animals forward. It's already amazing enough, and to get away from the um, sort of armchair quarterbacking, as I call it, uh, quick assessment of an interpretation of something. I'm, I'm trained in ethology, which is the biology of behavior, and there are um, quantitative measures by which you can assess behavior, and those are the strict rules that, that I go by. Well, I guess it just speaks also to the, the difficulties to making assumptions. No, in a in a when you when you conduct an experiment that um, that triggers an unusual behavior in in the species itself. Like you said, no, you you lure some something up to uh, to a light, uh, it will be an unusual behavior because we know that uh, that the natural field is a different one. Yes, you said you said the key thing, the word assumption, and how one handles the assumptions is the deciding factor. If someone just makes an assumption and broadcasts it as if it were a known fact, that's the wrong way to do it. Scientists state their assumptions all the time when you know the scientific method requires you to come up with a, a hypothesis, which is basically an idea. And every time you line out your hypothesis, something you think is happening, you then must list all the assumptions that surround that suggestion or that hypothesis. And that's what makes it scientific. <laughs> and so if you follow the scientific method and then you gather some data and you consider the assumptions and you get an answer, you have to modify the experiment next because you found out that you didn't ask the right question or you overlooked an important assumption. This is all part of the scientific method, which, which makes science so useful when it's done properly and so dangerous when it's not <laughs> so uh, i guess this is for you this is uh, this uh, poses quite a, a difficult um situation because you are a diving scientist in the field so i guess i guess it's a lot easier to adapt your your experiment in the lab where you control the situation but when you're in the field you can have to operate within a, a completely movable, changeable set of parameters. Well, you said the key thing, which uh, sort of states very clearly what my philosophy is. I have conceived or received all of my best intuition and ideas while I am diving, while I am immersed in the sensory world of these animals. And everything I do in the laboratory is based on what I learned and what I was able to understand when I was immersed in the sensory world of those animals. So it's the total immersion in their world helped me understand how they operate and how they work. I go into the laboratory only to cut down the variables and ask very specific questions. But I've never gotten my highest intuition out of the laboratory experiments. I've always gotten it from the field. And I think that's really important because humans tend to think too much in the sensory capabilities, or shall I say, the sensory constraints 
of humans. <laughs> you know, we think we have the best vision around, but we don't. There's much more light information for color and pattern available out there that we cannot see. We don't see any of the ultraviolet. We don't see at night. and We don't see polarization. Those are just a few examples. So this is not what the world looks like. The, you and I see it. It's only, there are other animals that see it very differently. So I think it's important to, to go out into the world and find out how it's really working if you're going to study those animals and to put in, into perspective what you can learn from the limitations of the laboratory experiments. Because you're taking that octopus and you're putting it literally almost on a different planet when you put it in a laboratory tank depending on how you designed that tank system and so the advantage that i think we have in our lab is that from our knowledge of how and where the animal lives in nature we design our laboratory tank systems to provide the key basic elements that those animals need and use every day in their environment and so i translate some of that information to the laboratory tank design as well for lighting and the, the, the tank dimensions and the water quality. So it's a very integrative exercise. Roger, for the department within TBA 21 that I, that I direct the academy, our, you know, our mandate is to foster a deeper understanding of and relationship to the ocean through the lens of art, but combining and bringing together other, uh, other disciplines uh, and knowledge systems, sciences, indigenous knowledge systems, uh, legal systems, and so on, right? So um, I think or what, uh, what you just said made me think of the understanding of our limitations, right? Our sensory limitations is also and make, uh, makes me think of um, the the kind of the, the impact that we very often have on, on in our environments that we, we really are not aware of, right? There are the immediate impacts, which I guess are, are, are clear and therefore also so, uh, so popular, like plastics, plastics in the oceans and so on. They are the, the slow burning, slow changes that are uh, a lot worse, like uh, acidification, temperature, um, and all of these things that are so difficult to um, to relate to because our sensory system is not attuned to it, right? And therefore taking responsibilities for for actions and and dealing with the consequences is uh, is so difficult because it lies so far outside of our personal and then also the perception of the species, no? Well, what you said is very profound and very true. And I really admire your grasp of that situation. It is a real pity that we can't get the leaders of our country, but, you know, individual citizens to understand this and to pay attention to nature and realize that we're just one species on a planet full of other species and everything we do has an effect on it. The humans are having a devastating effect on the planet in so many ways I wouldn't have time to list them all, uh, but humans are just not tuned into that. Anything we can do to help them understand it, like your project. And I mean, this is the almost the only reason that I engage in these kinds of activities and do things like TED Talks so that we can get some information out there so that at least some people will listen and start to tune in to the, plant that we, the planet we live on and the air we breathe and the water and what we're doing every day and how it has some sometimes deleterious effects on fundamental things like 
water and air, and not to mention all the animals that we depend on. I was thinking about uh, the concept of embodiment that you were, you both were casting, because actually it is a very important concept in, in Eduardo's work. He has been working with different species, trying to really become another animal, no? and, and trying to play with this idea that he become another animal. I remember a, a work he did some years ago with uh, with turtle, no, with a turtle, trying to become a turtle and trying to become and are trying to perceive the world as a turtle with this dream different temporality and i think this is connected with what we you were discussing now about how as humans we try to understand the world through our lens and through our time frames and and etc and this is one of the aspects of Eduardo's work that I think is very uh, interesting, that he really tried to not to represent or not to perform or not to uh, another animal, but to become. No? And uh, this is a, a very important uh, aspect, I think. And uh, then I was thinking in all these layers that uh, the project Octodurga has and that you were speaking before, and the collaboration with the collective too, that... Uh, bring also this kind of, uh, well, in, in Eduardo's work, it's always this kind of a spirituality, but in, in this case, maybe it has uh, still more. And how they try to create this octopus indigenous ancient Indian goddess, no? So, Roger, thinking in this idea of the octopus as an emotional deity, because as we spoke before also, the, this project has a lot of an emotional tool to overcome these uh, difficult times. What could you tell us about the octopus and its emotions? Is there in its cognitive process any affective part? Or this is something that we as humans put there? Well, this is a very difficult question. It's difficult to figure out a metric to measure and prove emotion in such an alien creature. But several of us have been trying very hard. And what we what we do know now is that if you look at 10 octopuses either in nature or in the laboratory each each one of them will react differently to some degree to different circumstances so we know that there are shy octopuses and there are bold octopuses so that says something about emotion right there or what some people might call personality the real word for that is a behavioral syndrome and so the idea of emotional deity is a, a very much a human one, and I find it hard to relate it to an octopus. But what we're really after is trying to understand the cognitive processes that a cuttlefish or an octopus has. And once you understand its cognitive capabilities, you can then bring into that some emotional concepts or, or even data, perhaps, one, one of the big questions is, does an octopus feel pain? And pain, by its definition, has an emotional component. But trying to understand the emotional component in an octopus, there are no experiments that show that yet. Now, maybe there will be. We know these animals have Long-term and short-term memory, their spatial memory is phenomenally good. Uh, we know that they 
sleep and have REM-like sleep. REM is rapid eye movement sleep, and there seems to be dreaming going on. There's dreaming going on. That shows different emotions in humans. Maybe that shows emotions in a cuttlefish or an octopus, but we don't have any way to measure that yet. It, it's a shame we can't talk to an octopus and get a verbal answer. That's how we figure this out with humans. We also put electrodes in the brain to measure that, and those electrodes in the brain haven't been, those experiments haven't been done yet with uh, REM-like sleep or some of the other things that we know that an octopus can do. So we're, we're lacking in our knowledge about emotions in an octopus or a cuttlefish, but we do know that they can do some extraordinary things like even future planning. And this is really, um, the data are just coming out and this tends to make you think, okay, if they can do some of these really difficult learning and memory and conceptual things like future planning, then it means that that complicated brain might be doing things similar to what primates and humans do in which emotions are shown. Yeah, there are some emotions. An animal that gets, you know, threatened quickly by a predator flashes uh, a kind of threatened, startled display in the skin, which could be considered an emotion. It is, it is a signal of alarm, and that is an emotion. So yes, there is some emotion shown in the cephalopods. It's just that we don't use those mushy human terms because they get mixed up the same way the word intelligence does. And we try to think of intelligence of an octopus in terms of human IQ tests or other totally inappropriate comparisons. So we're trying to work out some real metrics of what emotion might mean in an octopus and how we might test it and learn more about it and get some data. You know, we're just not there yet, but you know, we're, I, I'm skeptical. You know, I, I like to say that scientists are curious by nature, but skeptical by training. And that really is important. And so I think that there are things that the cephalopods can do that it showed a kind of embodied emotion. I, I think that's the key thing. I mean, we've talked a lot about embodiment, and I really think that's a key concept. I think we should be talking about emotional embodiment for an octopus and then look at it that way and start producing building blocks that we can study and understand. So long-winded answer, but a very difficult subject, but certainly one for the future. Roger, there's this, uh, there's this test about uh, self-awareness, no? Where you put a mark onto uh, an animal, a species, and, uh, and uh, put them in a situation where they can face a mirror. And, uh, and then the question is, if this animal tries to remove the mark, then there is self-awareness, right? The, the, the test is questionable. But I would just wonder if uh, within with an animal that has such an aesthetic understanding of its surroundings and, and uh, reproducing these uh, surroundings through his body in color and texture. Have, uh, have there ever been tests with this awareness, uh, um, tests uh, with, uh, with um, octopus or, or, or uh, cuttlefish? Well, the old mirror thing has been tried once or twice. There's just almost no um, experimental work done on it. The results were, were questionable. I mentioned earlier that um, 
I recently finished the second edition of a book called Cephalopod Behavior, published by Cambridge University Press. Um, in that document, which I wrote with John Messenger in England, we reviewed um, over a thousand scientific papers that are published uh, on cephalopod behavior, and we could not find any compelling data along those lines. I think it has to be studied in more detail in the future. And unfortunately, there are rather few people studying these elements of cognition and awareness and intelligence in cephalopods. It is very difficult to get grant money to study these subjects, believe me. Um, and so we're, I'm afraid, still swimming in our earths about most of these. And it would be nice to have more information, but you know, an octopus is basically a solitary animal. And when one of those solitary animals sort of bumps into another one of those solitary octopuses foraging on a coral reef, when we've seen this, they do react to each other. They, they can tell self from non-self for sure. And there's a beautiful experiment done in Israel by Benny Hockner and his group recently showing that if you dissect out an individual arm of an octopus and you keep that little satellite brain and the whole that whole arm and its nervous system intact, but separate from the brain, you've taken that arm off and you then touch that arm to another one of the same octopus's arm or a different octopus, it will recognize the different octopus just by touching it with its suckers. So there's a kind of awareness that's tactile and chemical awareness without the brain being involved or the eyes. So if you're talking about emotion, well, maybe there's a different kind of embodied emotion coming through what the suckers can figure out by themselves and an individual arm can do to know itself from separate arms or arms from a different species. So when you start seeing things like that, it makes you think a little differently about this. So again, there's no one I know of at the moment doing specific experiments on awareness on a cephalopod, but there are folks doing things on future planning and, and some of those difficult things that are a little more comparable and analogous to experiments on non-human primates and rodents and even humans. Because humans aren't going to believe any of the stuff, at least the scientists aren't, until you get comparable experiments and good data. One, I think to your point, right, the, the, the characteristics, the physical characteristics of cephalopods are, are they're so extraordinary, right, that, uh, that this forces you already to, to, uh, to activate imagination in a way that is so super, super productive in, you know, the minds of um, playful artists like, uh, like uh, Eduardo. You know, there's one other thing you're probably not aware of because we just published this. We just published a paper showing that the octopus arm seems to be, as far as we know, the most flexible, soft appendage on the planet. So if you take something like just the arm and you think about what that arm can do, 
you know, the flexibility is really incredible. It's kind of like a, a tongue or an elephant trunk. It's a, called a muscular hydrostat. And the idea is that the octopus arm is built in such a unique, special way that without skeletal elements, which inhibits flexibility, <laughs> and without hard parts, this arm can do an amazing number of things. And we measured and and challenged the octopus live live octopuses and filmed their arm movements. And we measured uh, how many ways it can deform. In other words, extend or retract or twist this way or twist that way and so forth. And by all measurements, every section of the arm could do all of these movements. We measured over 16,000 arm deformations. And so you could take this idea simply of here's an animal that has evolved this incredibly flexible appendage that can do so many things. And now we're just talking about the arm, but on every arm are a couple hundred suckers and the suckers each have 10,000 neurons for touch and taste and grasping. And so you've got this appendage that has evolved that is really unlike anything on the planet and seems to do so many things from locomotion to camouflage to reproduction to everything. The arms, the octopus depends on the arms for almost everything. And so there's another uniqueness and it's definitely an embodiment question, um, but it's, it's really something to think about in terms of an alien creature. And wouldn't it be nice, even in the world of, of human robotics, to have a soft, flexible appendage for crushed buildings and things, or in the medical community for having a soft, flexible appendages that would go down your alimentary or your respiratory channels in your body. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of ways to figure out ways that we would like to have that capability as humans, both in industry and society and medicine and all the rest. So it's another strange thing that people don't think about too much. It was the octopus arm flexibility. We actually tested it and measured it. Everyone sort of assumed, oh, it's real flexible. Or we got, I can send you that paper just out of interest. There are a couple of press releases. It only came out a few weeks ago. But it's another idea you talk about flexibility of behavior and coloration, but there's also physical flexibility of the arm and what it can do. Amazing. In terms of uh, evolution, um, and you might have talked to this uh, before, but, but uh, there was always a correlation made about the, you know, the, the size of the brain, longevity of the of the, the species, no, and and kind of social behavior to develop kind of complex behaviors and uh, I guess the development of the of the brain capacity as well right so like you said the the octopus is a is a solitary being that uh, doesn't live long yet has clearly developed this incredible brain and capacity so do can you say something about theories how how this this brain on this organism has developed so differently to anything else Well, those are unanswerable questions, but I can give you some thoughts about it. The old theorem that uh, large brains only involved in animals that live a long time and have a lot of sociality and so forth. Um, the octopus and cephalopods don't fit into that at all. It's just the opposite, as you pointed out. So now you have an animal that's very short-lived and it pops right out of the egg with an enormous complicated brain, <laughs> which doesn't 
help it live longer. <laughs> and it's operating at full blast right away. There's no long gestation period. Humans uh, and other primates, you know, it takes, you know, a decade or two for them to mature brain-wise and all the rest and have all the intellectual capabilities. And as far as we can tell, the cephalopods have them straight out of the egg. I mean, camouflage, for example, in a cuttlefish, I studied this on my postdoc, they can do everything even better than the adult straight out of the egg. So there's a certain amount of hardwired things going on there. Um, it's the idea of a big complex brain and life history thing is just unknown. It doesn't fit into any easy to describe paradigm for what brain scientists know about. So again, it just shows how different these animals are. And they are invertebrate animals. And a lot of people tend to think of animals without background backbones as being somehow simpler or inferior in some ways. And the cephalopods are certainly showing that not to be the case. They are an invertebrate animal that have taken a very different evolutionary pathway, but they have converged on complex behavior, much like the vertebrates have. And so how do you explain that? I mean, one of the things we're looking for, and this is a very, very big question that I emphasized in the TED talk I gave last year, because it's a big question among all of us in the research community, is, is the brain of the octopus fundamentally different in its architecture and its wiring diagram and how it is able to produce complex behavior and maybe intelligence. We don't know the answer to that. We don't know if there hasn't been enough funding available or people able to study that question really carefully. And so we think it's one of those great blue sky questions that needs to be addressed because if its brain architecture and connections fundamentally different from the vertebrate line, uh, which includes us, then we have only the second case on planet Earth in which complex behavior and intelligence has evolved. And it's done it with a different structure, different equipment. And that would be evolutionarily very intriguing, but it also would have some practical applications because the artificial intelligence community who, who use the human vertebrate brain line as the one model for intelligence would welcome a second model to look at how it's structured and how it works. It might give them new ideas. And my colleagues and I get comments from the AI people like that you know, pretty consistently. <laughs> so those are things you don't think about, but those are, those are really, really big questions. And don't forget that the brain is the least understood organ in any animal's body, uh, especially humans, also others. And so there are well over 100,000 neuroscientists around the world studying brains. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the big last frontiers. And it's not going to get solved in a very long time. So these are tough questions to deal with. It was uh, amazing to have this conversation. I think this encounter between art and science 
makes clear why these kind of relations are meaningful today nowadays and why an amazing creature as uh, as the octopus and its biological complexity it's the perfect uh, match for an uh, artist as uh, Eduardo or Baraya no like how they can imagine other ways of understanding our presence in the world with the octopus. I really like what you said, Roger, that uh, your best intuitions within your search processes happen in the water with the octopuses. No? And uh, I believe this is very meaningful that we have to think with animals and, and not think just about animals as humans. No? And uh, be, maybe be able of uh, going out of our body and embody other animals like uh, Octodurga did. So I would like to thank you for this amazing conversation. If you want or you have anything to, to add, you can do it, of course. Well, I have only one thing to add, and that it's been a real pleasure to, to meet and speak and brainstorm with um, you, Juan and Marcus. This has been a lot of fun. So uh, thanks for the feedback and the opportunity to be here today. Yeah, Roger, it was really um, fabulous uh, hearing about you and your research and your and your work. And and um, Juan, thank you very much for conducting the conversation. It was really fabulous. Um, I have one last question, which which maybe is on or off the record. Um, but how do you feel about eating octopus, Roger? Well, I do eat them. It's very very rare though, and so uh, I do like them. I'm eating them less and less. <laughs> I do eat squid in particular. And uh, the reason that I eat more squid is that, first of all, they're very numerous in the ocean and there are no signs that squid fisheries are being heavily impacted by fishing, although every other species in the ocean is being negatively impacted by overfishing. But the squid, because because they're so mobile, seem to be doing better. Um, so that's basically, you know, the reason. But, you know, we always talk about how smart and ingenious and wonderful and emotional the cephalopods are. But, you know, when I give scientific seminars and lectures to students and so forth, I often bring up the idea that some cephalopods are dumber than dirt. And what I mean is that there are some cephalopod species that are, by most measures, exceptionally boring and simple. And there are, there are 700 known species, probably another 300 out there that we don't know about yet. And there are some cephalopods that really are uninteresting and don't do very many exceptional things. Everyone dwells on the exceptional cephalopods, but not the unexceptional ones. So because I know there are some unexceptional ones, you know, I'll eat those species on occasion. So there's no, there's no scientific correlation between intelligence and taste. Thank you very much, Roger, and thank you, Marcus. Stage, the Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Tissen Bornemisa Art Contemporary. This was a co-commission between Stage and TBA21 Academy. Special thanks to Marcus Reimann. Remember to visit our website to experience the work of Eduardo Navarro and Barilla on www.stage.tba21.org. If you enjoy listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, 
Please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. And stay tuned for Season 2. We're working on great commissions with some extraordinary artists. In the meantime, enjoy the winter and please stay safe. Today's episode was dedicated to Eduardo Navarro and Barilla. The interviews were conducted by Juan Canela. The editor-in-chief of stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surroth is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutiérrez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramirez. Nina Esperanda and Gidra Bellodova are our project managers. Elena Utrilla is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Ana Esteve. Our theme music is by Carmichael von Hauswald. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.